<laughs> if you have your Bibles, open them on up to Acts chapter 9. We've been looking at the book of Acts, which of course is about the, uh, the origin of the church, the authenticity and the power of earliest Christianity. And in chapter 9, you come to, I think, one of the, one of the most famous conversion stories in the history of the world. The conversion of a notorious Pharisee named Saul into a man who would go on history to be known as the mighty planter of churches, God's ordained and inspired author, writer of upwards of half of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. We're probably going to go back and forth a little bit in calling him Saul and Paul, but realize we're talking about the same person there. Saul was his name pre-conversion, Paul was the name post-conversion. And thinking about that language, we probably should stop and say something about that. Conversion itself. Uh, conversion, the word, the concept, is one that, well, it just feels kind of primitive to most people nowadays. Uh, the idea that somebody might be converted to your worldview or your understanding of reality or your religion, that seems somehow incorrect or primitive, or, or narrow-minded, to ask somebody to convert. We just, we don't do that anymore. Uh, and it makes people inside the church uncomfortable too, because they begin to think, was I really converted? I mean, I didn't have the kind of powerful conversion experience that, that Saul had on the road towards Damascus. Am I converted? Should I have been converted? What, what would that have looked like? Should we be converted? Uh, the Bible is actually pretty clear in the way that it answers that. Matthew 18.3, unless you're converted, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, that's pretty clear. Jesus says again, John chapter 3, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Two different expressions, but most people who read the Bible and study it would say that they're getting at the same thing. In conversion, there is a change not just in, in what we do, but in who we trust. A conversion is a turn. It's a reorientation of life. The new birth is what Jesus called it. A new beginning, a new heart. Essentially, though, they're pointing to the same experience, that there is this radical reorientation of life that happens. So to say that somebody is a born-again Christian, in fact, is kind of a redundant expression. It's like saying they're a Christian Christian. You can't really be one without having been through the other. Uh, to be a Christian is to have been through the experience of conversion. But here's the difficulty. Even inside the Bible, actual conversion accounts, conversion stories, are wildly diverse. Sometimes people's conversions are dramatic. Uh, sometimes they're subtle. Sometimes they're quiet. Sometimes they're very sudden. With some, all the pieces fall into place all at once. And for lots of people, it takes time. And there's a great danger, I think, in taking any one conversion story, and I mention it because we're going to look at a dramatic one, but in taking any one of them and lifting them up and saying, that's the model, that's what it has to look like. And unless it looks like that, your conversion can't have been real or true or authentic for you. So rather than think about conversion in terms of, of patterns or, or steps or checkboxes to make sure that you've been through it, maybe think about elements, and out of this story of Saul, there are representations of at least three elements that are part of, uh, 
most, if not all, conversion experiences. You have them in your notes, but very quickly, those three elements are collision, and then darkness, and embrace. This isn't in your notes, I don't think, but by the way, the collision element you find there in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 9. The darkness is in verses 6 through 9, and the embrace You see that down at the end, verses 17 through 19. Let's start with the collision. On the road to Damascus, Saul is literally knocked on his backside. What did it? Well, there was a violent light. There was a sound, a voice speaking to him. Clearly one of those two things. But but I also kind of wonder whether it's not just those tactile experiences, but the fact that all of them point to the greater experience of being confronted with a truth that he had never had to face before. There's nothing like the raw encounter or confrontation or collision with truth to set you back. And that was the case for Saul. He had a collision with the truth. He had a head-on collision with God. A God that he didn't create, a God who who wasn't confined to the small boxes of his own understanding of the world, a God who had his own reality, who existed long before Saul and could get along just fine without Saul, thank you very much. Saul had actually constructed, as most of us do, a God that existed within the narrow confines of his own mind. He had a God that he wanted. It might not be the same God who's actually there, The one who was actually there is the one who can knock us down. See verse 5, the response to the collision? Who are you? Who are you, Lord? That's not a question you ask to the God that you made and that you understand. Saul thought he knew who God was. See, that's, that's the collision. He thought, for example, that God could never become human, take on flesh, be be like us, not for a moment. He was pretty clear that God would never set aside the temple and all of its rites and rituals and sacrifices. And and therefore, because he thought he knew exactly who God was, he thought that, that those who followed Jesus must have had it all wrong. And so he was pursuing them. And what happens on that road to Damascus is that he discovers a God who was a who was so far beyond the God that he'd constructed, the God that he had boxed in, that the collision was violent. In order to understand that, uh, remember something. Most, most people living in Mississauga nowadays aren't likely to construct God in their heads the way that Saul did back then. A God who's severe, who is about rules and laws, and you adhere to them and all the rites and rituals of the temple. Otherwise, it's bad news. But that doesn't mean that people of our day don't likewise construct God in their own fashion. Ask the average person living in the region of the GTA, said, do you believe in God? Most people will say, yeah. Uh, Well, tell me about the God that you believe in. Well, I believe there's something out there may or may not connect very much with the world or with me. Well, what's God like? Well, he's good. He's good in the way that Rochelle was talking about God being good. It's just kind of, it's good. Like, I don't know, like a Dairy Queen Sunday's good. I mean, 
My life's better with both, God and the Sunday. My wife would argue about one of the two. But here's the thing, that, that a God that you've made, however you have made him, a God that you made is basically just a projection of yourself. Sigmund Freud wasn't wrong by the way. People think of him as a great enemy of the church. He wasn't wrong about that. Often human beings left on their own will create God in the image that best resembles them to fill their own needs. What it doesn't acknowledge, and what he could never acknowledge, is that there may actually be a God above God who can collide with our lives in a way that can be painful, but also life-changing. See, if a God that you made up is really just you or a projection of you, that God can't change you. That God can't transform you. He can't really help you because he's no greater than you are. He's just a construction of your own mind. What you need more than anything else is a God who's real, a God who's bigger than your own life. For example, I've, I've talked over the years and so have you with with people in the GTA who have lots of struggles with doubt and inadequacy and self-esteem. Actually, no. They're not in the G- people never struggle with those things in the GTA. Let's imagine these people are from somewhere far outside the GTA because we don't deal with that stuff here. And they, they come to us from far outside the GTA and they've got these struggles. And as a pastor, one of the things I might ask is, do you believe in God? Well, yes, I believe in God. Has God ever helped you with your self-doubt, with your low self-esteem? Not really, no. Well, I'll tell you why not really. 1 John 3.20, one of my very favorite verses in the Bible, says, if your hearts condemn us, or if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. What does that mean? Your heart condemns you, you feel bad about yourself, low self-worth, you have no value, significance. But God, who is greater than your heart, who's outside of you, is able to come and say, no, you're wrong. You're wrong about who you are. There's a purpose for you. You have worth and value. It's impossible unless God is greater than you. There has to be a God who's real, a God who's there. Unless you have a God who's able to do that and challenge your assumptions, say the things that maybe you're not prepared to hear, a God who can contradict you, a God to whom you bowed the knee and said, I'm going to believe and acknowledge you even though I don't understand everything that you're about or everything that you say, but I know you're there unless you have that. then the reality of the things that you face day to day, self-loathing, inadequacy, that won't be changed mainly by a figment of your own imagination. God can't be greater than your own heart. It's God who's just a construction of your own mind. There's no power in that. More than anything, you need a God who is real. People who are converted begin to sense that I'm dealing with a real God. And it sets them back on their heels. That's the first thing, the collision. Here's the second thing. There's an awful lot of people who who talk about Paul's conversion being sudden. And yes, it is. It's dramatic. 
flashing lights, Jesus speaking, the onset of blindness, it all looks very dramatic, but I'm not nearly so sure that his conversion is as sudden as it seems. Think about it for a minute. Notice, for example, Jesus doesn't appear on the road and say, Saul, I want you to kneel down right where you are, and I want you to accept me into your hearts. You know the prayer. Here it is. Repeat after me. Converted in a moment. No, he doesn't do that. What happens? He is plunged into darkness. And he limps off blind, being held arm by arm as he makes his way to the city of Damascus. For three days, he was in total darkness. He wasn't eating, he wasn't drinking, he was fasting. Why blindness? I don't know. People have speculated. Maybe one of the things that God is trying to do is get a point across to Saul. Look, you've been spiritually blind. You've been blind to, to divine realities. I'm just going to drive that point home. Well, you sit sightless for three days and you go through what some of you have been through and what some of us call the dark night of the soul. Whatever the fact, he's not eating, he's not drinking, he can't see. It means he sits there in a cocoon of his own world, left with his own thoughts. Dark night of the soul. Have you been there? And what's happening in the dark time? Well, listen, it's not hard to reconstruct because Paul talks about it. He writes all of these letters to sister churches and he reflects back on that moment in his life and he talks about what was going through his head in the darkness. What was happening? Two things. First, he's reevaluating his entire understanding of God. He's going back over things again and again in his head, things that he'd never seen before in spite of the fact that he was an expert in the Bible, in the Old Testament. What does that look like? Here's what it looks like. Saul was a Pharisee. He rejected outright the notion that Jesus could have been God's Messiah, his Savior. Why? Because he knew as a student of the Scriptures that the Messiah would be blessed and honored by God. But all he held on to is an image of Jesus dying on a cross, crying out, God, you've forsaken me. That's not someone who's been blessed. There's no honor in dying on a cross. But then what happens? Saul meets the risen Jesus, hears him speak, and he's thinking suddenly, hold on, if Jesus was raised from the dead, if I saw him, if it means he was vindicated, that he was blessed by God, that he is honored, then could it be? Could it be that he was the one? Moreover, if if he wasn't on that cross because of something that he did, why was he on that cross? If it wasn't his sins, whose was it? He goes back to the Bible with that idea. And everything begins to look new to him. Everything that didn't make sense starts to make sense. I'll give you a few examples. In the first part of the book of Isaiah, which he would have known really well, the Messiah is described as a king, a strong and mighty ruler. Paul would get that. He'd understand it and he'd like it. The second part of Isaiah takes a turn and he's described as a suffering servant. That was a curiosity that they couldn't resolve. How could those two be the same? Jesus. Secondly, what about all those animal sacrifices? I mean, the Pharisees were involved in that. They taught it. They participated in it. They've been sacrificing animals for centuries. They'd spilled the bloods of of bulls and goats and the spotless lamb on Passover. What was that all about? Was it all futile? 
Unless it pointed to something. What did it point to? Jesus. What about Jeremiah and Ezekiel who spoke cryptically about a new covenant? God is going to do something new and wondrous. Through his prophets, God said, someday I'm going to put my spirit directly into my people and they will know me face to face like Moses. How could that be? How could a sinful human being receive the Holy Spirit and get face to face with God? I'll tell you how. Jesus. How could it be that without the tabernacle, without the temple, without the sacrifices and the priests and everything that he held dear, that the worship of God could still go on? I'll tell you how. Because what was once a place was now a person. Jesus. In other words, Saul carried within him this understanding of God and salvation that made much of the Bible opaque to him. Basically, he kind of believed that there was, <clears throat> there was a strong God and a strong God who, who came and sent a strong Messiah in order to rescue people who were able to muster up the strength to follow him in obedience. But wait a minute, what, what if God was not only strong but demonstrated strength and weakness. What, what if the heart of that strength was, was a weakness in the form of a Savior who was willing to suffer and even die? What if salvation wasn't just for the strong? What if it was for the weak? Well, then everything was different. So the first thing Saul's doing in the darkness is he, he's completely rethinking his understanding of who God is. The second thing he's trying to figure out, and some of you have been here, he's got to figure out who he is. In the darkness, you've you got to figure out who you are anymore. What is your identity? That language that is in Acts chapter 9, Jesus speaks to Paul and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He looks back on that account, and, uh, and it's amplified a little bit. This comes towards the very end of the book of Acts. Again, Luke writes about that moment. And Paul mentions that Jesus said something else. It begins in, in Acts 26, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? But this is where it goes on to say, it's hard for you, isn't it? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Goads, not goats. Goads. I had to look it up. Do you know what a goad is? Who said a stick? Yeah, it's a sharp stick. A goad was a, a shepherding tool. Uh, you worked with a, with a crook and you worked with a goad. Remember, whenever we talk about sheep, we come back to this again and again. Yes, they're cute and yes, they're cuddly and boy, are they stupid. <laughs> right? So here's the food, there's the sheep. And they won't go. Here's the safe place. There's the edge of the cliff. Guess where the sheep are. And in order to move them, you have two implements. The crook, which you pull, use to pull them, and the goad that you use to prod them. Saul, it's been hard for you, hasn't it? Kicking against the goads. In other words, Jesus is saying, there's been pain that's been inflicted on you. I've been sticking you, and it's been hard, hasn't it? And Paul talks about that experience. He talks about it in Romans. 
He really opens up about the deep recesses of what was going on in that dark time. He says, I thought I was alive. I thought I was even alive apart from the law. I felt pretty good about myself. But then this commandment came and it slay me. Thou shalt not covet. I understood it and I came home and died. You know, there's a sense in which you can go through the commandments, which really aren't meant to be severe. We've said this before. The Ten Commandments are really just the basic principles of how to live like human beings and get along in the world. Hey, can you not kill each other? Okay, check. I'm good on that one. Can you not sleep with each other's wives and husband? Okay, I've been, I've been okay on that one. Don't take each other's stuff. Okay, on that one. But then you get to this one. Don't covet. And that's about your inner life, isn't it? And he said he got to that one and it spoke about his, the desires of his heart and his cravings. And it slayed him. He, he died. Listen, if you're living in Mississauga, Brampton, Milton, GTA, most of you probably aren't building an identity based on compliance with the laws of the Old Testament. Most people aren't anyway. But you are building an identity based on, among other things, achievement. Don't we do that? We're saying if you catch us on a good day, I'm alive. I feel all right about myself. I'm proud of what I've accomplished in life. I know who I am because I know what I've achieved. I graduated from this school. I got that job. I went through this cycle of promotions. And I've done these things. And I'm living in this neighborhood. And hey, look at my kids. And and people say nice things about me. And sometimes the very best thing God can do for us is to let that unravel. But boy, it hurts. Here's why it's a good thing. Because it's going to unravel at some point anyway. You're going to go through a crisis. You know it's true. You'll go through a health crisis, an occupational crisis, a a midlife crisis. It's going to happen. And something has to come home. Some crisis in which you disappoint yourself and realize that sometimes God is goading you. Why? Because... Because it's only in those moments that we acknowledge that we need something we don't fully have and we cannot fully achieve. Paul's in there in the darkness thinking, I can't keep this up anymore. I can't earn it, and yet I need it. I need a Savior. This is important. Remember this if you can. Conversion is not primarily a change in your moral center. I think sometimes we we carry that idea that I become a Christian and it means I stop doing all of these naughty little things and I start doing all of these proper things. All the nasty habits get replaced by all the good habits. Christianity is primarily behavior modification. And yes, there ought to be change in behavior, but conversion is not primarily about behavior modification of anything It's a change to the most basic assumptions about who you are. That's what conversion is. Saul was humbled in the darkness. He saw that he couldn't save himself. That put him right on the brink. And sometimes the most important thing that God does is allows you to get right to the brink. That's the darkness. Let's have a look at the good part. The embrace. Look at verse 17. 
Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. And we left out a few verses there. Saul's there in the darkness. He's gone to Damascus. God came to Ananias beforehand, though. Ananias was a disciple of Jesus. And God said, Ananias, yes, Lord, he responds. I want you to go to Saul. He's there praying. And I want you to go to him and lay your hands on him and give him back his sight. And then I want you to receive him. (laughs) Ananias is, is not happy with that idea. He knows who Saul is. And yet he goes anyway. And when he goes in and lays his hands on him, he says, Brother, can you imagine what that means? You've had people pray for you. I hope you have had people pray for you. Have you had people pray for you right there in your presence? Have you had them place their hand on you while they're praying for you? You know what that communicates, what it's meant to communicate. It's care. It's love. It's connection. You're, you're not alone. I'm I'm with you in this. I stand before God with you in this, and we'll pray together. Laying on the hands is not magic. There's not spiritual electricity. Maybe there is. I don't know. But it's it's not a superpower. But when somebody places their hands on you, it's kind of like an embrace, isn't it? What's really remarkable about this is not only does he place his hands on this man, he calls him brother. Ananias is not stupid. He knows who Saul is. Another part of the section that Grace didn't read, but here it is. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all of the harm that he's done to your people in Jerusalem. And yet he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all those who call on your name. See what he's saying? This man is carrying a warrant for my my arrest in his pocket, and you want me to go pray for him? He could whisk me off and throw me in jail. Is that really what you want, Lord? Yes. Yes. And Ananias does it. I don't think he does it just because he has to. He's scared, but he understands the gospel. He understands that it doesn't matter. Again, you see, if if the Messiah had come only in strength, if the gospel was from the strong and for the strong, that would be one thing. But, but the Messiah came in weakness. Jesus came as a servant. He came for those who are willing to admit that they're weak. And that means when you when you meet him that way, you receive Jesus that way, it, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It just doesn't matter. So Ananias comes in, puts his arms around Saul, says, Brother. And in doing that, is used by God as his emissary to say, Saul, now you can rest in my arms. It doesn't matter what you've done. Now you're mine. People ask you what conversion means. What does it mean to be converted? You know what? You collide. You get to see the God who's really out there. You're convicted. You go through all that wrestling in the darkness. But then you receive that that welcome embrace. You believe. People think, oh, faith, faith. You've got to have 
faith. Everybody, everybody kind of worries about that. That means I have to get rid of all of my doubts. That doesn't mean that. In the end, conversion, faith means just resting in God's arms. Laying down the burden of being your own master and your own savior and thinking that you have to be competent enough to run your own life. You know, there's so many great places that talk about that experience. John Bunyan, The Pilgrim's Progress, described it this way. He said, my burden fell off in an instant. An old hymn, we don't sing much anymore, but had this great line said, you lay your deadly doing down. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Just rest. That's how it happens. Collision, darkness, embrace. I got four more pages of notes, but I think the neocitron is wearing off, so... I better wrap it there, and it's probably more important that we we go into that posture of of receiving and find the embrace of God. So let's spend some time in prayer together, and we'll invite the worship team back to the platform. Father, we're so grateful that you are a God who's greater than our hearts. And even though the process can be painful, Maybe the best thing that can ever happen for us is to have you bring us right to the brink. Prod us and goad us and take us there so that we learn to rest in your arms and nowhere else. To find life and purpose and hope that we can find nowhere else. And I I pray, God, for those who might be here today who have been wrestling through some of those very things or For those who didn't even have it on their radar at all until they came today and now you've set their minds in motion. And I pray with them and for everyone in this room that we would not just understand what conversion is, but be able to celebrate its reality in our own lives. It's your doing. It's done in Jesus' name. It's received humbly through Him. And so through Jesus we pray.